This very day, he will halt at, N- at Nob. He will shake his fist at the mountain, at the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord of hosts will, will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe, and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. There shall come, to for, there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Please be seated. Let's pray for God's word. Father in heaven, thank you for your word. Help us to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest these things so that this might bear fruit in our own lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, we're not talking about like, uh, we're not talking about fairy tales. This isn't like some sort of uh, fable made up here. We're talking about real history that Isaiah prophesied in the midst of. And what he's dealing with here in in chapter 10 is, um, remember where we started was kind of Ahaz um, earlier in the kingdom. And we think this is probably closer, the the, kingdom, Northern Kingdom has already fallen in 722 BC. It wouldn't be till 587 that the Southern Kingdom was going to fall, but sorry to spoil, spoil, spoiler alert that that's what's going to happen here. Um, but it's history. You can look that up. But essentially what's happening is that uh, he had warned uh, Ahaz not to, to partner with Assyria. Uh, he had done it anyway. They had taken down Syria and uh, in the northern kingdom. So Assyria, the greatest military power at the time, one of the fiercest uh, nations in battle at the, in the ancient world. And essentially what's happening is Assyria is making like, in, in the Hebrew, there's actually an order that shows almost like an arrow pointing at the heart of Jerusalem at this point. And um, hundreds of thousands of warriors, uh, great military might, this tiny nation, uh, Judah now faces probably King Hezekiah at this point. And what Isaiah is saying essentially is that Assyria thinks it's all that in a bag of chips because, you know, they're basically the rock, Dwayne the Rock Johnson of, of, of um, you know, kingdom might kind of thing against, I don't know, an Air Force officer. I'm kidding, sorry. <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyway, so... So there's just, there's no chance. There is just no chance. Assyria is just basically boasting. In fact, this happens all the time. God's sort of like, you think you're, he, 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 he almost mocks the Assyrians that they think they're so mighty that there's just no way that this can turn out. This is why I'm saying living in the, in the, um, in the, the confines of this building, we can kind of believe this, but that, 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 that God would do this. But when you're looking at military power, there's just no way this is all going to work out. It's just so, uh, the, the, the power is just so lopsided that there's just no way the Assyrians can lose. And they're basically saying, hey, uh, we've taken down all these other nations and we're going to take down Jerusalem too. We're by the power of our might, by our strength, we're going to do this. And in fact, they're even saying they worship the same God as Samaria did. And so we're going to take them, we're going we're to uh, mop the floor with them, so to speak. 
And um, that's, I, I thought that was interesting, too, that on the outside, sometimes the world can see two things that seem to worship the same God. But in fact, Samaria had uh, adulterated God's worship uh, through the introduction of the, of the golden calves early in, the, in worship. But from an external standpoint, sometimes it can look like everybody's trusting in the same God. But Samaria was sacked precisely because even though they had the promise they had turned aside to idolatry, and the Lord had allowed Assyria to wipe them out. And now Assyria is, is bent on the same kind of destruction, thinking that it's all just going to be a matter of counting, counting noses, counting strength, and destroying them. And God is, is, is promising, prophesying through uh, Isaiah that it's not going to come about, that God's going to take care of this. He's like, you think you're that, you think you're that powerful, Siri? I'm going to show you who's in charge here. And, um, and you can read about what happens to Sennacherib and his army where they're essentially devastated, um, not by anything that uh, the kingdom of Judah does, but by the Lord's strong arm he delivers them. And so then he, he compares essentially the wiping out of all this might to the wiping out of the forests of Lebanon, which were these great and mighty cedars. We still don't know exactly what the trees of Lebanon the, were, were like, but they were renowned uh, for their uh, amazing properties. I mean, even beyond the Bible, they were um, famed for the, uh, the, the nature of the wood that they produced. But essentially, he's given this imagery of all the cedars are laying low. And so all this might is destroyed. And then what, we then, what, what then proceeds is going into uh, verse, or chapter 11, uh, the prophet pivots into this description of this root of Jesse that's kind of growing up out of this felled forest. It, now, now, the question is whether or not that, that also signifies that you can kind of see the kingdoms of Judah and that sort of thing are now very just like there's nothing left, or that the or that the forest of all of man's ambition is laid bare, and all you see is this green shoot standing up, like a small branch. You ever seen a felled tree? I have trees that, um, I have trees that grow in my yard that I don't want to grow, and I keep cutting them back, and they keep growing. Or if you've ever grown or, or cut down a big tree, uh, and then sometimes you'll see just a small green shoot growing out of that. Some mighty tree is gone, and all that's left now is a green shoot. And, and as it's looking at it, you're not going to look at that and go, whoa, look at that shoot. That's amazing. That's a that's, that's powerful. Look how mighty this shoot is. That's how, how, it, how the imagery is not to give a sense of might, but sort of like, that's not very impressive, is it? It doesn't seem very press, impressive that a root shall come forth from the, root, from the stump of Jesse, that all that's left is the stump of Jesse. And what is interesting about that is that um, Jesse is the father of David, so it's, it's, it's actually said to be the root of Jesse is, is essentially who's, who's Jesse's root, and of course it's God himself, and so the one who's coming forward from Jesse is actually the one who bears up Jesse, the one who gave life to Jesse himself, but he will also be descended from that, and he's going to come forth, and so then the, uh, from, from unimpressive beginnings, then we hear about how impressive this um, promised deliverer, this promised Messiah is going to be in verses 2 to 5. He says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall be upon him, the Spirit of wisdom 
in, in understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge in the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or, or, um, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but in righteousness he shall judge the poor and, de- and, and decide with equity for the, for the meek of the earth. And he shall not strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. I'm sorry, and he shall strike the, the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. And so what Isaiah sees here and he's picturing is this coming Messiah, this coming son whom we prophesied already. We've been seeing the unfurling of this promised, um, this promised son who's going to be Emmanuel who comes by the virgin. We've, we've heard about the promise of the, um, the son whose name is Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. And now we hear more about his character, more about what he's going to be like. And we, we hear that his, um, he's, the spirit of the Lord shall be upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might. And so Christ, when he came, he was, he was the son of God incarnate. But remember, he was fully man. And it says in the scriptures that he was empowered by the Spirit. And so we sometimes forget and we think that maybe the way that, that, that Christ walked the earth was he was sort, some sort of hybrid where he was kind of half man and half God. And any time he needed to, he could just tap into the part of him like a database of being God and just, just use that power, so to speak. I don't mean to speak in, in irreverent ways, but we just need to remember that he, he remained fully God. And so the fully man part of him had a human mind that had to rely upon faith and upon the spirit for understanding. He didn't have, he couldn't just know everything simply because he was the son of God. He had to learn. He had to grow in wisdom of stature. And he was given power by the Holy Spirit. And he had wisdom and understanding, the way to discern things. He didn't judge by appearances. He didn't judge by um, what other people are overawed by. He knew what was in man. Um, I don't know if you guys have been following a, a kind of a, a big issue that just happened, but uh, a huge crypto scan- scandal where uh, a person named Sam Bank- Bankman-Fried essentially uh, conned people out of billions of dollars, like uh, tens of billions of dollars. And essentially, he was able to do that by essentially by giving people the sense of that he was somebody to be trusted. By appearances, he was somebody that you wanted to kind of invest your money with. And in, in many ways, a lot of the way that, that people attain power and influence, and sometimes uh, people lose their, a lot of money, is because they're overawed by the things that they see, by the confidence that people project. And that's our nature sometimes, is there's this idolatry in trusting in men, and trusting in what they can deliver, trusting in their charisma. And we see that even in, in political situations where uh, people receive um, more power or more influence because of their wealth or because of their position. And in fact, what happens in what, what God even talks about earlier in chapter 10 is that he's going to judge the Assyrians and others for the treatment of the downtrodden, the poor, and the widows, and of course, Christ himself, when he comes, he's going to look out. He's going to provide justice to the poor 
He's going to provide equity for the meek of the earth because um, often what happens is that the scales are not just. The scales are not balanced. The people who have the, the resources to affect um, either what the laws are going to say in terms of how things are interpreted, how um, the laws are written, or even the ability to, to, to get the counsel that you need to, to have a fair hearing is not um, always the case. Now, we have, we have one of the most just systems of government in, um, in human history, but even in America, we, don't, we, we recognize that there is inequity um, to justice, much less at the time where it was very common. It was, it was just very common for rulers to be able to become a law in and of themselves and to whatever, um, whatever might makes right, and whoever has the power um, makes the rules. And so, uh, but Christ himself is actually one of the reasons in terms of Christian influence why we provide for equity for everybody, because you'd be You'd probably be shocked. You ought not to be, but we're so ingrained kind of with the ideas of Christian senses of justice that still permeate our culture today, even though we're uh, turning away from God. But the idea that, um, that everybody should have an equal um, representation before the law or that justice should be for all is a very kind of Christian or... Um, biblical concept. It's not a concept that you find in other cultures or through human history, and so it's a good example of how Christ has in part brought that, um, not only in terms of what he will provide perfectly, but what he's provided in part, and also what we should be fighting for. But he also has um, righteousness shall be the belt on his waist, and faithfulness the, uh, the, the belt of his loins. And I, toward that end, I've always liked the the imagery that the Puritans used to talk about, um, the fact that we, we were once hooked, as it were, to Adam's belt. We were once hooked to the first Adam in terms of being unrighteous because in Adam we fell with him, we died with him in sin and trespass, and so we were by nature children of wrath. But in God's grace, Christ has taken us from from Adam's belt and hooked us to his belt, which is one of righteousness. This is, this is what he does. He actually, this belt is actually one of kind of going into battle too. You put a belt on because you're, you need to kind of hold things up. You need to hold your sword. You also need to hold up the robes in order to move quickly. But Christ is serious about righteousness. He doesn't just go in casually in righteousness. He doesn't just accidentally fall into righteousness. He's zealous for righteousness in, in the way of kind of suiting up for it and having a belt for, for action for righteousness. So then we hear about the, um, the, 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 re, the results of this righteous one who's coming, the, uh, the righteous uh, shoot of Jesse, and, and it's like the curse is undone. Uh, starting in verse 6, it says, The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the, of the cobra, and the, the weaned child shall put his hand on the, on the adder's den. They shall not hunt or destroy in all my holy mountain, in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord 
at the waters, as the waters cover the sea. So what we see here is the, is the curse undone. And in fact, at the, um, at the end of the temptation of Christ at, in, in the book of Mark, it talks about, it says, it almost you think maybe a throwaway line where it says that Christ was in the wilderness with the wild beasts. But if you look at the curse, that's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve as they were thrust out of the garden for their disobedience, that they kind of went, they were thrust out of the garden into the wilderness with the wild beasts. And so Christ has essentially endured the curse for us and what he's about to bring forward here. This is not, um, this is a picture of the things that are going to happen. Now, is it a picture? I think it's a picture in one, in, in part of what the new heavens and the new earth are going to be like. And it uses a lot of imagery of animals. And I was thinking about the fact that for us, it's kind of a zoo kind of thing. Oh, yeah, we've been to the zoo. We've seen these things. Just as an aside, one of the things I've joked about a lot is that, you know, like the question about whether dogs are going to be in heaven. And I said, probably, but not cats because they don't have souls. But then I realized that leopards are mentioned here, and I had never caught that before, so it looks like cats are going to be in heaven too, so I was wrong, and I repent of my error, and so I hope you guys will all forgive me. That was always a joke, but I had to realize, well, I guess cats will be in heaven too, but um, the whole point of this, of these things, is that it is the curse that brings about even the destruction and the death of of animals and the people are living would have seen all these things they would have lived with these they wouldn't have just kind of lived in their concrete jungles or inside suburbia and said oh you know like looking on their ring doorbell and saying hey there was a bear that went by no they'd be seeing these things on a regular basis and and just so you know in case you don't know how things work but these animals don't get along you know they don't they don't naturally just hang out with one another bears don't graze with cow cattle rather. Um, Lions don't lay down with lambs. Uh, Leopards don't, um, you know, they don't, they don't hang out with their food. They eat it. And what's happened here is that everything that caused in terms of when, when mankind fell, the curse affected all of creation. Creation's groaning along with us who are waiting for the Spirit, um, for, uh, for, for God's glory to be revealed in us as Christ comes again. And what Christ will do by the coming, by his coming, is undo the curse. And this is pictured in the way that the animals are behaving, that there's peace between the animals, that they're, they're getting along. And I don't know why I was thinking about this, but Josh, when he was much younger, he and, he, he and, um, his father and I were in this play in Temecula, and there was this song, The Sheepman and the Cattleman Shall Be Friends. And I was thinking about that song, like the sheepman and the cattlemen are going to get along even, the ones, those, those, those kinds of people. But there's going to be peace, peace in the, in the sense that death is going to be undone, destruction is going to be undone. The only thing that worries about me about this passage is whether or not we'll still be able to eat meat, because I look forward to a new heavens and a new earth. And this, this new heavens and the new earth is an embodied existence. It is a resurrected, embodied existence. You understand that our hope is not that, um, as we learn, and it's a wonderful life if you've been, if you've happened to watch this season, it's not a life in which we get to earn our wings and, and, um, and, and float around on on clouds playing harps, but a life in which we will be re-embodied with, with bodies that are no longer, um, 
that no longer wear out, no longer have pain, no longer have um, loss. We will be resurrected, and, and Christ himself is our template. He's the forerunner. He's the guarantee of these things, and Christ is going to bring this about so that we will be able to be with the beasts. And, and I used to kind of like wonder if I was going to enjoy heaven, if I was going to, because it used to seem kind of like boring to me compared to the real world, because maybe the kids are like this. It's like, man, if heaven's like going to church, I don't want to be there, you know, like praising God all the time. Is that what it's going to be like in the new heavens and the new earth? But we will be, we will be so, um, we will be so set free from sin that yes, praising God, because we're going to be redounding to glory of him every single time we discover something new, and it's not going to just be doing the same thing. We were created for discovery, for um, dominion, and now this new heavens and the new earth will provide a means for this. And even in here, there's a a sense of the the prophecy of the sea, which you see in Revelation, uh, in in the book of of Revelation, where there's no no more sea. And that's not that there's not going to be any water in the new heavens and new earth, but that the judgment was always in the place of the sea. It was a violent and unstable place. And so hell was kind of pictured by, by, um, by the sea. In fact, when, when, when um, uh, Jonah went down to the depths of the sea, it's, he calls it being in, in, enclosed by Sheol. Like as he went down to the depths, it was as if he was dying, as he was going into Sheol itself when, and was rescued by the whale. So he was re- rescued from hell itself. And so hell will be no more is essentially what this is picturing. And so it's a glorious picture of what Christ is going to provide. And then we, he continues in verses 10 to 11. He says, In that day the root of Jesse... Who shall, who, who shall stand as a site, I'm sorry, as a signal for the peoples, of this shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. In that day the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant that remains of the people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Patmos, from Cush, from um, Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and, and from the coastlands of the sea. Isaiah had already talked about, in, in, in Isaiah chapter 10, about a remnant. And in fact, Paul uh, alludes to this in Romans chapter 10 about the, the hope that, no, not, not all Israel is lost. Not, not all of God's people are lost. And in fact, Christ then connects um, the true Israel to all who have been engrafted. But here Isaiah sees this picture of this, that the people from, who have been kind of scattered by this conquest, by the fact that all of this, all of this conquest has essentially caused all of the ethnic um, purity or all the ability for anybody to be able to identify as Jewish or as in Israel, Israelite has gone away. And so there's that, that, that after the Assyrian conquest, that the, the 10 tribes are lost, as it were, and all that's left is kind of a ragtag group of the Samaritans who are still worshiping in a false temple, um, even up to the, the time of Christ. And so that when Christ comes to the woman at the well and um, tells her, uh, tells her, and she starts asking about where where they're supposed to worship, they're literally in the shadow of a Samaritan temple. 
that was on Mount Ebal, the, uh, or Mount Gerizim, which is the Mount of Blessing, the place where all the, the blessings were pronounced on the people because the Samaritans were going to be on the Mount of Curses. Come on, if we're going to set up a place, we're going to be where God's blessings are. But um, it was still a, fa- a place of false worship, but Christ pointed to the real place of worship, at least as far as that went, was where the Jews worshipped, which is where God ordained the temple. But then he pointed to a time where there would be, um, God would be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And all these boundaries come down, and we even see that all these prophecies of kind of the recovery of these scattered people is fulfilled by the ingathering of the Gentiles themselves, so that we become, in part, a, we become the ones who are gathered from the corners of the earth, so to speak, as Isaiah is saying, that, that this is what God has done in the Messiah, this, this stump of Jesse, this righteous branch. He is gathering in the nations. He is, there's a promise here, a fulfillment here, that Christ who comes will gather in people from the ends of the earth. And I just want to remind you again that this is all because of God's zealousness for us. Because when you think about it, there's, there's something just miraculous about this, that there's, there's just no way that people could have even known, like, who they were connected to at any one point. There's no, there's no way they would have ever been taught to seek God. That we, we come from, forget the uh, Samaritans, but we come from uh, ancestors who would have known nothing of any of this stuff for thousands of years, and yet somehow in God's zeal for us, he sent the gospel, not that we were looking for it, not that we were a people who were zealous for him, not that we were a people who were, who were uh, seeking after him. We were very tired of worshiping that God, but God was not tired of us, and he was zealous to recover not only these tribes that had been lost, but then in that, in his grace, he says, you know what, I'm going to do something even bigger than that. I'm going to cause even these, these wicked peoples to be gathered to myself, and they shall be beloved of me because of Christ's sake. And this is, this is again, this is one of those things that we, rem- we, we need to remind ourselves that this is the importance of Christ becoming flesh for us. And I hope that you're at our Christmas Eve service, worship service. I just want to say that. But if you have to choose one or the other, please be here for worship next week. That's the priority because that is what we are here. This is what we are here worshiping is a gathered people. I know that it seems strange to have to say that in this day and age, but what we are doing is so important because God has gathered us from, from, from death, like we're just bones on the, on the ground. We, he, you wouldn't even be able to tell one people from another. You wouldn't even be able to tell, why did God choose that one? Why did God choose to show favor on that one. Why, why me? Why this wicked person? But yet he has, he's gathered us from the four corners of the earth in Christ. And he's caused us to be, become a people. And we're, we're marching forward in, 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 um, with, with Christ as the one who has gone before us, who has, who has set the pace, who has, has battled sin and death for us and has won the battle so that we no longer fear death. Though we feel it sting now, we feel it's, it's, it's uh, the continued effects of the curse upon us, but the, as those who have hope. And it's so, it's so important to remember that without that acknowledgement, without that truth before us, if Christmas or this time is anything but that, then, then, then all the other stuff 
can fade away, but this particular truth remains true. And so that's the thing that we are here for. That's the thing that we need to be reminded of, that all those other things that bring some joy and some comfort, ultimately they can't restore the things that have been lost that are the most important things. They can't restore loved ones. They can't restore heartache. They can't restore bodies that are broken down. Only Christ promises vindication. Only the root of Jesse is able to accomplish the, to, the, uh, the thing that will give us hope, that can cause us to, to rejoice during this, this time of season and be the ultimate source of comfort. And so um, let's thank God again that he has accomplished something mighty for us through, through, through small beginnings and to trust that even as the people of Isaiah's day, as they looked over the battlements and saw hundreds of thousands of people arrayed against them, they thought, there's no way that God can do this. But some believed. And then God delivered in such a powerful way. And so let's be those of faith. Let's, let's go out into the world with faith to see even in the midst of darkness, even in the midst of gloom, even in the midst of, of mourning, that God has promised and will deliver. And so that this, this becomes not only a message for the walls in here, but a message that goes forward so that we go forward with hope of the promises of what, what God has accomplished and will continue to accomplish. And so that we're able to deal under the suffering and the pain and the sorrow still enjoy aspects of this season, but in the light of our sorrow, we still see the joy of the resurrection and the expectation of Christ coming again. Let us pray. Our Father, our God, we thank you for your gospel and thank you that we have hope in you in spite of our external circumstances, in spite of the seeming smallness in the world's eyes of the things that we're doing we know that they are mighty because of you. We know that, that what you are doing is mighty, that you have conquered sin and death for us. And so we ask that we would have eyes to see that it really is true and that you will bring about the things that you have promised. We, we can look forward again to a new heavens and the new earth. We can look forward to seeing our loved ones resurrected. We can look forward to resurrected bodies, to, to animals that were in enmity being um, being, being uh, reconciled to one another and, and a glory with you for eternity. And we look forward to that even as we struggle now, even as we continue to march forward now. In Jesus' name, amen.